Welcome to Optimistic Tales, Season 3, Episode 1. I am your host, Dr. Eric M. Moody. So before we begin, I want to let you know that my interview with the Professor of Pop is divided into two episodes, Part 1 being presented here. His story is an inspirational tale of hard work, and in his own words, sufficient talent, and of course, favorable circumstances. So, without further ado... Okay, um, today I, it's my extreme pleasure to be talking with Mr. Paul Gambaccini, uh, the current host of BBC Two Radio's Pick of the Pop. Uh, Mr. Gambaccini's career, as we'll talk about, spans almost 60, if not over 60 years. Uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting him 40 years ago, and uh, he has done quite well, I, I say jokingly, because, uh, you know, you've become a staple at the BBC, I would say. And, uh, and that's, that's saying a lot from a, you know, from a young boy that uh, was born and grew up in the Bronx of New York, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so can you just tell us a little bit about your early days, where were you born, went to school and in the little bio? Well, first of all, uh, just to say that the route that you have just mentioned is impossible, was impossible, and had never been done. So it's just a sequential path that I took, and uh, I'm glad I did. I'm glad this all happened to me, uh, but it's not one that can be planned. And I remember John Denver, of all people, saying... Uh, when I suggested to him that he had achieved something unique, I said, well, anybody could have done it. Um, <laughs> and I said, no, anybody could not have done it. Your name was Deutschendorf. You changed it to Denver. And then you lived the Denver life. Right. And there was only room for one of those. Exactly. You were it. You were it. But everyone cannot do what you did. Everyone can do something. Everyone can do what is appropriate to them and which gives them inspiration. But we all have to live with the elements we're given. And I was born in the Bronx in 1949. And uh, my parents and I lived in a single room. Oh, wow. And I was the grandson of Italian immigrants. And uh, when my brother was born the following year, we moved to a one bedroom. And then when my next brother was born, oh my two years later, we moved to a two-bedroom. Uh, so, Did you have bunk uh, beds? Well, uh, I slept in the same room as my brother, uh, okay. but we didn't have bunk beds. And then when we, when we moved, when I was six, we moved to what was an artist's colony at the time called Westport, Connecticut. And the reason we did that was because my parents believed in the American dream that with education, you can advance. And this town of Westport, Connecticut had a high school that had just been chosen one of the 10 best in America. Every year they have these 10 best lists. Right. And Staples High School of Westport, Connecticut had been chosen. So they said, all right, we're moving there. And uh, we did move there to a dirt road. Uh, and uh, it was called Elizabeth Drive. And Elizabeth was the name of the daughter of the landowner. Oh, wow. And so we were in this town of 8,000, except it wasn't a town of 8,000 for long because two years later, 
the Eisenhower interstate came through and it was I-95. <laughs> it was I-95 and I remember watching it being built. No kidding. Uh, yeah, it had to go over the, the big river in town, which was called right. the Saugatuck River. And so these big concrete constructions looking like Egyptian temples went up and then they put the lanes of the road on top of those. Right. And so when I-95 first opened, we would go out for Sunday drives on it because the whole phenomenon was so new. There was almost nobody on it. And right, on Sundays, exactly. there was nobody on it. And so it was a big family thing to just drive around for about half an hour wow. on this new road. Can't do that now. <laughs> no, you can't. As a matter of fact, uh, they, they, uh, they've become the, uh, the uh, uh, quite uh, opinionated because they're really great for getting someplace fast unless there's an accident and then they become a parking lot. And That's because right. a lot of them now are, you know, three, four, five, six lanes, you know, places like Atlanta, Birmingham or, you know, out west, it, it becomes quite a large parking lot and there's no place to go because unless you're near an exit, you're stuck there. I have seen that, uh, though I have not been in it, but uh, yikes is all I can say. Yeah. Um, anyway, so but when I was in the Bronx, um, uh, and of course, I have vivid memories and um, of this period, which is the first six years of my life. And it's caused me to become um, a bit of a political theorist, because I mentioned to you that I have two brothers. Correct. Now, I think probably the years three to six are those years in which you get your sense of what the world around you is and how you are going to deal with it. So therefore, I'm the child of an integrated urban area, whereas my brother, who's three years younger than I, spent years three to six in this basically white open country community. Right. He is now a Trumpist, <laughs> and I, I am not. Let's just put it that way. And I think it isn't because we have different genetic material, but we had different uh, material to build on and contend with as children. Uh, also, a very, argument, isn't it? It sure is. And you see, for me in the Bronx, and I, I have a, a, a Dartmouth classmate uh, who's a, a black man from the Bronx, and, and uh, my attitude towards him, and he's now a professor uh, in Brooklyn, I said, well, to me, uh, in the Bronx, black people are known. And uh, you have to do more to impress me than just say, I'm black, dig me. I, I'm right. used to having black people all around me. And if right. there weren't black people in my world, then I would think something was wrong. Right. But I can take no credit for being, golly, what word do we use nowadays? Aware, awake, whatever. Because when I came to England, I had to learn the difference between different Asian groups. Wow. I was not sophisticated enough to know this is Indian, this is Bangladeshi, this is Pakistani. Right. And, and so therefore I realized, oh, the reason why I was, and let's use the word enlightened, why not? Right. Let's have fun. Yeah. It's a positive conversation yeah. about black people was because they were there. 
Right, exactly. Because my first baseball hero was Willie Mays, who was a black man. My first football hero was Jim Brown, who was a black man. My first rock star hero was Chuck Berry, and he was a black man. Right. So yeah, I, I, would, I just thought, well, there were black people everywhere. You know, right, I, exactly. I, I didn't even think that. There were black people everywhere. Um, but there, was, there were no, uh, and when I say Indians, I mean actual Asian Indians. Right, exactly. Um, uh, so I did have to learn about that. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating uh, that you, you you can know a situation from real youth, and of course, since music became my way of life, doo-wop was a big thing in the Bronx right. and, and in New York City, and uh, I love doo-wop and uh, early rock and roll. Now, when I moved. I moved off our street, which was Sedgwick Avenue. But in the early 70s, on that very street, hip-hop was invented. Uh, it was invented by a man called DJ Cool Herc, uh, who would host these uh, parties in the huge recreation room of this giant tower block of an apartment building. And his innovation was to have two decks rather than one, uh, because he loved to play the same song on both decks so that he could extend the instrumental break. And this was called the break. Right. And so he, he loved the breaks. And over the breaks, he would have his friends come in and do what in Jamaica they call toasting, okay. which they would do rhyming speech. And this became known as rap. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of his rappers was called Cowboy. And Cowboy one day came in and did a rap about a friend of his who'd gone into the army. And one day he'd gone on maneuvers. Right. Hip hop, hip hop, <laughs> hip hop. And people would say to Cowboy, do the hip hop, do the hip hop. <laughs> and that's how hip hop got its name. And I find it amazing <laughs> that today everyone under the age of 50 uses right. the expression hip hop. Exactly. Never asking where it came from. Where it came from, right? And it came from this fellow who is now dead and can't see what wow. he started. Uh, <laughs> cowboy. You can see him in the video of the message by Grandmaster Flash in Fierce Five. At the oh, end dear. of this, they were Bronx group. And at the end of the message, somebody says, hey, look, there's Cowboy. And, and Cowboy comes into frame and they all start talking to Cowboy. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Bronx has always been a rich uh, area for music. And, and I'm so proud from Dion and, and the Belmonts, right. uh, who were an early group. And uh, and then, of course, we had Luther Van Dross. I mean, we've just had a zillion people come from the Bronx. Yeah, I just uh, read a story uh, recently that uh, Lamont Dozier of Holland Dozier Holland passed away. And he was yeah. a huge uh, songwriter for Motown. Uh, matter of fact, I've got an, an, an album in my collection of the Supreme Sing Holland Dozier Holland. Uh, it was part of my mother's collection that she passed on to me. Uh, so what uh, you mentioned, Lamont, I got to tell you, uh, I had a great interview with him. I may have interviewed him twice. And then I met him at an award ceremony. I mean, but he, he was I adored him. Of course, I adored him. I mean, my God. How can a human being be involved in so many classic recordings? Um, but he told me that um, when they wrote the song, Where Did Our Love Go? Right. <laughs> the Marvelettes turned it down. 
No kidding. Because they thought baby, baby right. was a bit infantile. <laughs> but they, they'd had a number one. So he's Mr. Postman. They don't want to go baby, baby. Then when Winter Logo was number one, he ran into to Gladys Orton, who was the lead singer. And he said it was like star time. Right. Uh, she treated him. Oh, hi, Lamont. <laughs> um, and it, it's so interesting, you know, and one thing uh, about uh, that song. And, and, and of course, I, I have been so privileged to have known almost all the leading music makers of my lifetime. Right. Uh, that song, the beginning was inspired by, of all things, the Dave Clark Five. And you think, what? Uh, but they had a record called Bits and Pieces. Okay. And Bits and Pieces start off, it's like boot, uh, boots being stomped. Right. And they changed that to hand claps. And the hand wow. claps at the beginning of Where Did Our Love Go come yeah. from the Dave Clark Five. Who would ever have thought that? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that was uh, was a wonderful thing. Anyway, uh, and... <laughs> Oh, this is a bit rude, but it's so funny. <laughs> we, uh, I had a television show uh, in England called The Other Side of the Tracks during the mid-80s. Right. And uh, whenever we were in a town in America, we would pick up on an interview with whatever Motown artist happened to be in that city at that time. Right. And we were in L.A., and Holland Doji Holland had their office in a strip mall, of all places. And... <laughs> And, and they, they said to me, you got to tell me why every one of your crew has broke out laughing as they neared our office. And I said, well, next to you is a legal firm. And the name of the legal firm is Wank and Wank. <laughs> now, and of course, uh, in England, uh, that right. word is a very frequently used uh, verb for a yeah. sexual act. Let's just put right, that exactly. Which is not used in the United States. You're right, right. So they had no idea that this was funny, but it was absolutely hysterically funny. <laughs> um, but they were great. And then uh, translation, later, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, years later in London, uh, I was hosting the annual songwriting awards, which are called the Ivan Novello Awards. Yes, that's, and, yep. and I, I and you're I still doing it. that. You've been doing that for what thirty years now, right? I've just given it up. It was thirty-four years, and I felt. This is the moment. You, you have to know when, okay, it's time for a change. I didn't know there was going to be one in the next couple of years, but I always knew there would be one. But then we had COVID. Right. Yeah, COVID messed up a lot of stuff. <laughs> COVID messed up a lot of stuff. And during COVID, people thought a lot. Right. And there were changes. And there were changes in music making. There were changes in the um, Music Academy and uh, with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. There were a lot of people thinking about what the content of their songs was going to be. Right. And I just thought, I am older than this. And it's time for somebody who's younger than me to host these awards. And uh, fortunately, uh, that decision was met with with good grace and they gave me an Ivor Award for having done this. And I was only the second person who was not an artist to be given an Ivor Novello. Oh, award wow. Yeah, because that's usually uh, that that those awards aren't uh, record industry people. Those are the same uh, composers and songwriters, correct? That's right. Yeah. 
it's the Academy of Songwriters and Composers. Right. As it used to be. So with your 30, you know, you said 34 years, I, I, you know, doing that. Right. Although you said, you, you know, you're, you're older than that. And uh, I, I'm, I'll be 60 this year. So I, I'm kind of understanding what you mean, but what have you, then, then let's talk about what, what you saw besides the changes that COVID brought about with the inflection. I mean, the introspective look that people started giving themselves. What are some of the big changes in the last 30 years as far as songwriting? Because I, I, I know in, uh, 10 years ago, a video game won an Ivor, the soundtrack for a video game. And, you know, McCartney, he's done uh, Destiny uh, video games. So the, they're starting to, ex- songwriters are trying to expand out. I know a lot of artists are selling their catalogs. I mean, how, is, how do you see in the last 30 years some of the big significant changes in songwriters? The music making, as uh, I knew and loved it as a boy, is almost changed completely. Uh, very few people play their own instruments on their records. Okay. Uh, computerization has, has occurred. Right. Uh, a- and uh, it's also a-, a way that doesn't appeal to me musically because everything is compressed and a bass note has the same sound uh magnitude as a symphony orchestra. The New York Times actually did a comparison uh, study on this, the hits of the 70s and the hits of the teens. And the dynamic range uh, of the 70s was so much greater than of the teens. Uh, A song by the Eagles uh, would go from uh, genuinely soft to genuinely loud. Right. Now, a record by someone like Drake, even if it sounds soft, it's actually as loud uh, at its softest moment as it is at its loudest moment, because this is done for the radio and for streaming. Right. Uh, so that the listener uh, doesn't have to cope with amplification uh, complexity. <laughs> and uh, I can't stand that. Because yeah. I was a classical pianist as a boy, and, and right. I was accustomed to music that went from pianissimo to fortissimo. Do you think that's uh, what they mean by the when they uh, you know when they record the uh, the albums and the vinyl, and they're actually cutting it into the into the vinyl? Do you think that's what they mean by the the warmth of vinyl gets lost in the digital world? Oh yeah, yeah, it's completely it's it's real uh, against an artificial reality. Right. The same is true, of course, of auto tuning. Now, we all were amused when Cher used this in 1999 on her song Believe. It was a new sound, and and it sort of suited the the lyrics uh, of that song. So nobody said, oh, Cher, what are you doing? Uh, It just seemed like another interesting new thing that Cher was doing. But then uh, along came uh, some people who did this every record. Uh, And I thought, oh, my gosh, I hate this. (laughs) I want to... I, you know, my favorite American records of my youth, this is in contrast to my favorite American songs, which were Bob Dylan, but my favorite American records were Motown. Right. And Motown was 100% organic. It's kind of like food. It's organic uh, versus grown in a lab. Uh, All of those instruments were being played live. Right. And they had symphony musicians from the Detroit Symphony. And the singers were singing with their real voices, not treated voices. And it has always thrilled me uh, that uh, there were songs that were actually 
performed in the moment. My first favorite song that I was aware was my favorite song was At the Hop by Danny and the Juniors. It was number one for seven weeks in early right. 1950. And uh, it's, it's music which from beginning to end, about two and a half minutes, there's a piano player playing frantically. Right. And even now, when I've heard that thousands of times, I wonder, is he going to keep up? <laughs> <laughs> or, or is he just going to fall by the wayside before the end of the record? <laughs> because this was two and a half minutes that happened in the history of the world. Right. My very favorite single, Like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan, right. was six minutes that happened in the history of the world. Right. Yes, they did about 10 takes of the song, right. but this take happened in six minutes. We are hearing an event. Right. Then in the 80s, uh, with synthesizers, we started having layered records. Right. Now, uh, I uh, had a friend named Phil Collins, who, who uh, became very successful. He was a great talent, but right. he would layer his records in studio. Right. And uh, you'd have one track and another track and another track. And of course, there weren't that many tracks when I was a kid. I mean, it was right. two track and four track. Four track was a big thing. Then eight. Well, I mean, Sergeant Pepper was recorded on a four track or or eight track. I mean, what there wasn't many right. tracks. Sergeant Pepper was recorded on four track. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you did not need expensive material. To yeah, exactly, brilliant. you're brilliant. So, even though I thought, boy, these Phil Collins records are great, but they didn't move me. Like Beatles records did because they weren't happening. Well, let me let me ask you about then because uh because you know you, you just mentioned again that uh you know about you know your favorite was Motown, although you know since we're we're in the eighties now uh you were instrumental in uh in promoting Kajagugu, who uh who you know Nick oh, Rose yeah. produced from Duran Duran. Now an interesting side story is this was eighty two when I got back from from our summer in London, uh. I was really into Kajagugu. I mean, I had I had Lamar's haircut with the I had bleached my hair and I had the dark thing, the dark bottom with the tail. I was really I was into that British new wave. I I loved them. Uh, but yeah. I, you know, I don't know why I loved them because you know I still listen to my my record albums and you know I'm a product of the sixties and seventies. But but I really got into it. Well, there are two ways of appreciating music. One is appreciating the classics, the greats. And then the other is the music of the moment. Right. And because there's an important element called novelty, uh, <laughs> something that's new, something that's different. And uh, the new wave movement uh, was that in spades. Punk did not export, as you probably know. Punk right. uh, was a powerful force in Britain in the late 70s, but it didn't sell in the United States. Uh, but uh, the groups which built on that spirit of rebellion uh, did very well, uh, beginning with the police. Right. And then we had the new wave movement, which you have mentioned. And I have to tell you, I was uh, at a Gary Newman after party. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and these two uh, young men came up to me and uh, they said... Uh, Hi, we've just come down from Birmingham. We're doing our first gig in London tomorrow night. Would you come to our gig? And then come back afterwards and tell us what you think. And I said, uh, yeah, fine. And it was Nick Rhodes and John Taylor okay. from Duran Duran. 
Right. And so we, I did go to the gig. I did go backstage. We've been friends and I did some projects with them when they were Duran Duran. Right. Now, one of uh, Nick's production projects, as you know, was, was Kajagoogoo. Right. And uh, I uh, had a very strange experience with that record because um, I was in a club and when you're in a club, it's sanctuary. You, 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 you're not working. Right. At least you think you're not working. <laughs> but, uh, but this young man from Wales came up to me and said, I have a friend who's in a group. Can I give you this cassette? And I just thought, oh, my God, violation of sanctuary. But nonetheless, I wanted to be polite. And I took the cassette. And the next day, when I got into my car, I popped the cassette in and it was Kajagooga. Right. And the first track was called Ooh to be Ah. And uh, within the first 10 seconds, I thought, oh, my God, this is a hit. When you're, when you are a Radio One DJ, ladies and gentlemen, right. these were the days when uh, we had far and away the largest listenership of any station in the world, and that's because Britain didn't have much commercial radio yet. This was right. the BBC. Right. Uh, so we had over twenty million listeners a week on the, wow. on the network. So we were the focal points of people who wanted to be stars, and uh, I thought, oh my God let's see where this group is right now. And I looked at the address on the thing and it was within walking distance. <laughs> oh my God, this is meant to be. You know, so uh, I went over, I went over ahead. and I met the lead singer who was Lamal. And he said, we're having a uh, rehearsal uh, later this week. Will you come? And I said, yeah, fine. And it was in a garage in, in Chelsea. So I went, and uh, when they finished doing these six songs uh, for me, and I said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm really impressed. And I, I really like that one, uh, Shy Shy. Um, that was the original loved, title, wasn't it? Original shy, title. Shy. And, and I loved uh, what uh, Stuart, Croxford Neal, he was the synthesis. <laughs> and he, I could tell he was actually a, a good keyboard player. He was a synthesis now because synthesizers were popular, but he would have been a good piano player if he was still using pianos. And I said, but I, I would suggest, I, I would have two suggestions. And I made two suggestions about the song, which they incorporated into the song. Oh, wow. And when the song is out on the picture sleeve, it says special thanks to PG. Aha. Uh -huh. Uh, now, they wouldn't want to name me because then other DJs might not have wanted to play the record or the BBC might have thought this is he, he must have an interest in the record. Right. But that's what that was about. Um, and then I. Uh, when I launched this new TV series that I was mentioning about in, in the first show, because I had and I know people who make television programs and I won't be able to believe this complete content control. And I thought they just gave me an hour a week. And, right. and I said, all right, how am I going to do this? And I thought in this series, the first two thirds will be a profile of a major star. And then the last third will be a uh, industry piece, how the music business works. So the first show that I had, the first two thirds were Phil Collins. Right. Uh, and then, the, but the last piece was the launch of a group. How is a group launched by a record company? Right. And uh, since I was certain that the song Shy Shy was going to be a hit, I thought, all right, let's do Kajagoogoo and, and see how EMI are launching. Well, first of all, EMI wanted to change the name of the song because they already had Duran Duran and Talk Talk, gotcha. uh, the group that had the song gotcha. It's My Life. 
Right. And, uh, and, and Kajigudu are already called Kajigudu. So they thought, we don't want everything to be double-barreled here. So right. uh, the song was changed to two shy. And uh, so we interviewed the group uh, before their first London gig. We, we went to the uh, video shoot. Um, and uh, so the, the record was launched on our show and it became a number one in Britain. And, you know, there's nothing a broadcaster likes more than to be right, except to be seen to be right. Exactly. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And the record was a world hit and it changed your haircut. Oh, well, that story you just told what reminded me of, of when you said, oh, my God, these people just around the corner. That's probably what uh, Brian Epstein, when he heard this, you know, all this talk about this group called the Beatles. And he looked down and goes, oh, wait, this is just around the corner. <laughs> so he walks, right. you know, walks around to the uh, Cavern Club, which is just around the corner. You know, uh People ask, and and then they, they don't ask just me. In the Financial Times, every week they ask somebody, "What's more important, talent or ambition?" And and to me, to have any kind of success requires three parts. One is sufficient talent, not necessarily genius. You don't have to be Stevie Wonder or Prince. Uh, sufficient talent, hard work. That's the Malcolm Gladwell theory: ten thousand hours and favorable circumstances. And favorable circumstances uh, can include your own geographical location, the trend in music at the moment, who you know. Right. But part of that you can affect because you can make sure you're there in the right place in the right time. Right. And and I give myself a lot of credit for that. Um, I I have said uh, to whoever <laughs> is bothered enough to ask. I think well my my great gift was knowing what sockets would accommodate my plug <laughs> i never wasted time applying for jobs i would just get in touch with somebody about something i wanted to do and say would you like me to do this right uh like i sent in unsolicited record reviews to rolling stone that was my first paid engagement um, right now now I realize unsolicited reviews are almost never accepted, but in my case, they were. So that was great. Thank you, Ed Ward. Uh, and uh, I was uh, another example of that, because you have mentioned Paul McCartney, is that I was well aware, as everyone was in 1973, that he had not done any interviews since the Beatles broke up. Right. And I thought, well, I'd like to have his first post Beatles interview right. and i knew his publicist and i was dealing with his publicist uh concerning other artists on a regular basis and i said oh you know when paul um feels like doing an interview uh, i'd like to do it for rolling stone i knew rolling stone would say yes of course, um, of course. Of course <laughs> and uh were. and and so uh son of a gun paul makes a record that he likes and believes in which was band on the run and uh I was asked to go up to a recording studio in Wembley and I talked for an hour to Paul and Linda. Later, I realized this was my audition. Ah. They, he was auditioning me <laughs> as the interviewer. But I, I had an, an ace up my sleeve that I didn't know I had, which is that Linda liked me because I went to Dartmouth. Right. 
Oh, uh, okay. Because she thought that Dartmouth men were real men. <laughs> anyway, uh, and Paul uh, was satisfied that I was into asking questions about music rather than personality, because the last thing he wanted was to be asked questions about uh, are you having an argument with John Lennon and things like that? Right. He, he wanted to have an argument and, and an interview about music. So I had six one hour sessions with Paul, three in London, three in New York. And when I was at a gig of his uh, in Hyde Park in the noughties, and I said to my friend uh, on, on the occasion, and, and my friend said, how did you get to know Paul? And I, I told him what I just told you. And he said, and, and I said, uh, and I had six one-hour sessions with him, and he laughed. And I laughed because I realized that nowadays you'd never have six one-hour sessions. Right. With um, nor certainly would you be given a copy of the record a week in advance so that wow. you could live wow. with it. You, you, you could know what you were talking about. You could right. get into it. Nowadays, of course, the fear of piracy is such that. Oh yeah, you hear it. Matter of fact, that was the that was the uh, plot of his uh, "Give My Regards to Broad Street" movie. Was the master the master tapes got stolen? So it was obviously near and dear to his heart. You know, you, you brought up an interesting uh, uh, comment when you said that uh, you know you were able to talk about you know asking questions that weren't about the Beatles breakup and as well as, you know, being, you know, making your own success, being in the right place. You did the same thing when you were a teenager with the comics, with the comic books. And that's interesting that the, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but, but I also want to make sure we include in the books that you're talking about those interviews, you were able to talk about Magneto and Titanium Man, the Crimson Dynamo, you know, because of your background in comics, he's thinking, Wow, this guy really knows his stuff. <laughs> well, okay, two things about this. The first is an extension of what we had just previously said. Right. Once you get someone's confidence and you get them talking from their perspective, right. inevitably, they will start talking about the things that are on their mind. So Paul did talk about the Beatles oh, okay. and did talk okay. about the breakup with Lennon, but at his moment. Right. When he wanted to talk about it. I had been with him walking through the streets of Manhattan when a man approached him, tapped him on the shoulder, gave him an envelope and said, hello, Paul. I'm sorry you have been served. Oh, and, uh, oh. Uh, and I guess he couldn't just, he couldn't say, oh, I'm not Paul McCartney. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and, and I found it very interesting because the guy who was doing this obviously liked Paul McCartney. Oh, yeah. But it was it was sure job. And then job, I, right? uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I interviewed Paul. One of those sessions was in uh, Linda's father's apartment. And there's Linda's father. John Linda's Eastman? Father was Lee Eastman. Lee Eastman, okay. And Linda's brother, John Eastman, has just passed. Oh, and okay. uh, so uh, I've had reason to think about that visit and things that Lee had said to me and meeting Stella when she was one year old. Wow. Uh, because she uh, crawled, oh, we were, for some reason, uh, Paul and I were talking on a staircase, <laughs> a nice interview site, and, and she crawled over and took off my watch and put it on her ankle. And, <laughs> and I said to Paul, there's a designer. Yeah. Now <laughs> well, they call those red bits, don't they? <laughs> you know, and, you know, little realizing that Stella McCartney would indeed become a 
but um, I have come to believe that if you're going to be alive in your time, you have to contend with what there is in your time, both the greatest and the worst. And the greatest for me in the 60s was 